Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. We tape Discover Lafayette with the support of Raider, a managed IT service provider that offers hands-on technology support and forward-thinking solutions. With managed IT integration, including cybersecurity, communications, and technology support, you have just one vendor and one number to call, allowing you to concentrate on what's most important, your business. For more information, visit RaiderSolutions.com. We're proud to welcome our newest sponsor, Lafayette Surgical Specialty Hospital. Physician-owned, Lafayette Surgical Specialty Hospital offers expertly trained doctors and staff that are actively involved in all aspects of patient care. Their reputation for excellence in patient comfort, safety, and overall treatment is reflected in an average patient satisfaction rating of 98% or higher. For more information, visit LafayetteSurgical.com. Our guest today is Lafayette Parish Sheriff Mark Garber, our 27th sheriff. He served in that capacity since January 2016. Mark has had a diverse career in law enforcement. Before he was our sheriff, he worked with the Acadia Parish Sheriff's Office, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and the city of Arlington, Texas. He served in the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations as a civilian special agent, criminal investigator in Iraq, where he earned a Bronze Star Medal for his actions. Sheriff Garber also served as an assistant DA here, prosecuting felonies for the 15th JDC. And Mark, I want to tell you, I really look forward to letting you share your story. Um, Law enforcement is just, it's critical to the quality of life in a community. And I know you've really focused on making our community safe. I've had the opportunity to see your department in action uh, as chair of Crime Stoppers and just some of the community task forces that I've been allowed to serve on. I've seen what you and your team do. So thank you for making time today. Uh, My pleasure, absolutely. Yeah, so um, we're here at the end of a hot summer in 2022. And um, there's so many things I think that have been in the news, and I'd like, I'd like if you would first to give your background. I gave some of your professional background, but can you talk just you know as much as you'd like about what led you into law enforcement? Sure, you know it's it's uh, nothing nothing dramatic. There was no big uh, experience or life changing experience or anything like that. I had uh, graduated high school when I was seventeen from uh, Iota High School and was going to LSUE uh, ostensibly to pursue a bachelor degree. And I was in business administration for pretty much lack of a better idea and and you know lack of creativity on my part. I didn't know what I wanted to do, right. like most seventeen year olds. Yeah. And I was driving to Eunice one day and uh, decided, you know what? I don't want to work in an office all the time. I want to be outside. And I hadn't had really particularly good experiences with law enforcement up to that point. Um, I had been, you know, kind of stopped when I'd ride my bike to uh, go set traps, which my dad uh, made me do at a young age to trap nutrient and muskrat that were cutting holes in levees <laughs> that were part of our irrigation system for our rice field. I was literally told, you're going to set, you're going to trap these animals. 
And so I would ride down the road with a, a pellet gun and later a 22, oh, no. and I'd get stopped by the cops because I had a, a kid with a rifle, you know, but even then it wasn't a big, that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they, they weren't really, you know, all that nice. And I'd seen them interact with um, my, you know, parents on different things like getting stopped for speeding and just really wasn't a pleasant experience. So I didn't, I didn't have a good sense of law enforcement. But what I did have was a desire to work in a job that had a lot of variety, that had a lot of, of change to it all the time. And I didn't want to be stuck in an office. And so I said, you know, I'm going to try law enforcement. I'm going to go see the sheriff and see if I can get a job uh, with him. And I saw, I went to see Sheriff then Ken Goss, who was the oh, sheriff yeah. of Acadia Parish yeah. for, for many years. And uh, he, he hired me uh, initially as a dispatcher. And then I moved to corrections and uh, I wasn't post certified at the time. It just, you know, Hey, mm-hmm. raise your right hand, swear you in, give you your uniforms and, and all that. And I volunteered a lot of time going out on patrol because I was so excited about being out and, and just interacting with people and, and fascinated by the thought of, of being the wall between crime and society. And so mm. uh, I, like that after, <laughs> after just a little bit of that, I uh-huh. eagerly changed my uh, major to criminal justice mm-hmm. and was completely all totally in. And that's, it's been that way ever since. So you stayed in college while you were working as a dispatcher I did. and doing different things. I did. I finished at LSUE uh-huh. and uh, he let me retain my commission. I went and finished the, the last two years at LSU in Baton Rouge and, um, you know, felt like uh, I should get some postgraduate work, but I was too anxious to just start, you know, mm-hmm. busting bad guys. Yeah. And so that's when I got the job with Wildlife and Fisheries right out of college. And uh, then uh, what did you do for them? I was a game warden. And, okay. Yeah. That must have been fun, though. It was. It was great, but it it didn't pay much at the time, and. It was uh, one of these things where uh, there was no housing, and they they put me in a rather impossible position right after a hurricane uh, back then. And um, Arlington Police Department uh, called me up, and they offered me a job that was much much better pay, and you know, just better economy in that part of Texas, in between Dallas and Fort Worth. And so, yeah. uh, I I'm always one for adventure, <clears throat> and. Uh, I thought, you know, man, I, I really, you know, grew up in a town with, that still today does not have a stoplight. So, you know, to go into a, a metropolitan area like that mm-hmm. was just, you know, it's kind of cool to me, right? I'm, I'm going to go there and I'm going to, there's going to be a lot more bad guys to chase. And I was yeah. really excited about it. So uh, I took that job and it was the, the most difficult thing for me um, was orientation. I used to pray during uh, whenever I would get dispatched to a call because you're sitting there for for after six months of training in an academy. Uh, they had their own in-house academy. Then you go into what's called field training with a series of field training officers, and it was for three and a half months, and you had um, daily observation reports that are written on you as a trainee. So you don't really have a job secured yet. You're still being evaluated. And back then, unlike now, uh, the culture was to wash people out. So I was super, super nervous, and we didn't have GPS, right? There were no cell phones. There were no nothing, mm-hmm. no screen to look at. Right. So we had what was called a, a map book. So you had these laminated pages of a map, and dispatch would give you the coordinates. It would be, you know, page 48, X33. And you'd look you'd it up, and then you'd have to reverse engineer it to your location and very quickly drive there. And so I never thought about that, how easy it is today to find something versus what you had to do. So you get good at spotting addresses and and, and looking and and all that. And And learning Arlington. Yeah. 
it, it was it was so comical for a guy from a, a rice and soybean and sweet potato farm mm-hmm. uh, who's now in a city to uh, you know and I have a terrible sense of orientation for a guy just really a terrible sense of direction but I have a really good memory so I was able to memorize my surroundings enough to where I knew if if I could see these landmarks I was westbound on Randall Mill or I was mm-hmm. northbound on Collins and you you if you want it bad enough, you learn the block numbers pretty much by memory. And I knew I'd be in the 2800 block of West Randall Mill, for example, Mm -hmm. because they would spontaneously ask you, you know, what's your, what's your location that your FTO would. And they picked up really quick on the fact that orientation Mm -hmm. was my weak point. And, you know, I I had to kind of just BS my way through it. And my, my biggest fear was not being able to get to a call. You know, I didn't care what happened at the call. I just wanted to yeah. get there, yeah. and and it worked out. Obviously, I had a, a, a great time uh, as a police officer there. I hate when people give directions for east and west. I'm like, can you just say right or left? You know, <laughs> I'm kind of the same. Directionally challenged, but you know, we seem to make it where we need to get. So. I, I got good at it quick. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious with the timing. I know you served uh, in Iraq as a civilian. When did you go to law school? When did that occur? So um, after, I guess, I was in Arlington about 10 years. And okay. about my fifth year in, uh, I had shown a lot of promise as a young officer. And I interviewed for the motorcycle unit sort of as a, not really a lark, but more just to get experience interviewing because I was really going to go into narcotics or some other branch of criminal investigative division. And they chose me. And nobody ever got chosen for motors or the motorcycle unit who was a young officer. It just didn't happen. So I wasn't worried about getting picked. And I remember I got a, a we had pagers back then. I had a page and I, so I called the number from a payphone, and uh, they said, hey, we're, we're selecting you for motors. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, all right. You know, I guess I got to go do this now. So I was a motorcycle officer and, you know, just writing tickets all day, working accidents and 10 hours a day, uh, four days a week, you worked, you know, on this this motorcycle in the city. It was a big one, and, like uh, the thousand Harley, pounds. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the the school to, to properly learn how to ride one is very challenging. But, I mean, that's um, a lot of arm strength, huh? It really doesn't take much strength if you do it right. Oh. Um, a, a 12-year-old could ride one of those big motorcycles. Uh, they couldn't pick it up, but they could ride it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's technique, it's not strength. It looks like it takes strength. And a yeah. lot of guys wear themselves out trying to do it, but it's really shifting your weight around and, and mm-hmm. just, you know, the, the techniques that they teach you. Uh, so at any rate, I'm doing that and I sort of got bored mentally and I wanted to start looking at a graduate program. And so I've started looking at the various master's programs and decided, you know what, I'm going to get ahead of the curve and I'm going to get a PhD because by the time I'm ready to be a chief, I want to have a doctorate level education. Yeah. And then I stumbled upon, well, hey, why don't you just go get a law degree? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a PhD level education and it's a portable occupation, I call it, right? I can go anywhere, get licensed by the bar in that state, and yeah. boom, I can at least make a living and support my family. So I applied to uh, LSU Law, of course, where I graduated my undergrad, uh, Baylor, SMU, and um, uh, UT, which I didn't know any better at the time. I had no chance to get in UT. Uh, I'm a good test taker. I did well in the LSAT. I had a decent undergrad GPA. Mm -hmm. So I was admitted to three out of the four schools and I got to choose which one I went to. So um, I took a leave of absence for nine months, which actually the police department opposed, but the city manager allowed me to do it because they were short of cops. You know, back then we're always short of cops, right? Historically, Every PD has always been short of manpower. So it's, I was telling a group of my deputies that recently, as an aside, 
Uh, so they didn't want me, they didn't want to let me go, mm-hmm. but the city manager who oversaw police and fire uh, reasoned that you know what he might come back and what's the harm? They already require a bachelor degree to even apply there at the time. It was one of the most highly educated departments in the nation. Only a handful had that requirement, uh, so they allowed me to take a leave of absence. So I did my first year as a one L, they call it. Uh, back-to-back semesters, mm-hmm. and then I was back in the patrol car. In the summer uh, or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah uh, right. I didn't go to summer school. I just right. was back in a patrol car. Mm-hmm. And, um, no, you I, went I'm, to uh, which school? SMU, SMU in Dallas, right. Yeah, yeah very, very um, high-quality legal education. I was mm-hmm. oh, definitely yeah. out of my league. Uh, you know, I was used to being— <laughs> First the, year is so hard. It, it was, yeah, it was, it was um, a big, big shock to someone who had been out of undergraduate mm-hmm. for five years, but also— I wasn't prepared for that level of academic rigor. You know, the, these other kids I was there with were absolutely exquisitely prepared. Like my, my daughters who go to ESA, mm-hmm. they are being prepared to succeed academically. Yeah. I was not. So I had to work so, so hard to meet the standards that uh, these these professors set out before us. And, you know, you're all type A personalities. You all want to do so well. And, um, you know, I found a way to do well. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was I didn't do it the easy way, yeah. for sure. That's really impressive, though. I mean, it's... Um I think what you brought to the table was your experience. I think a lot of those kids that know how to study don't really know what life's about yet, and you had lived it. You know, they so that's not, invaluable. When you're taking a test, you really could see the issues. I could, I could work with them, you know, yeah. for sure. And uh, and I, I, I had to work harder than they did because um, they were not out of the penumbra of their the the support of their parents, and they didn't really have to worry about expenses like I did. I wasn't qualified for student loans, right? So, because I had income that I I had to show. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't get these interest-free student loans, so I just had to figure it out. And it's a double whammy, yeah. Every class I took was a huge investment financially for me. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I, it meant, I felt like every semester I had everything on the line. And there yeah. was, you know, like I'd burned the ships in the harbor. There wasn't any going back. So you did that uh, for four years. Then did it take you four uh, it, years it took to graduate? Me, I think three and a half yeah. years or so. It's a you, three and you, a half year program. Well, it's it's actually my recollection was it was a three year program, hours. but when I went back after the first year, I. Uh, just made my own part-time schedule. And at first the registrar there at, at SMU sort of gave me some grief about it. Uh, but I told her what I was doing. I explained myself. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody to that point knew I was uh, in law enforcement. And uh, you know, so I, I just said, look, this is what I'm trying to do. And mm-hmm. she was sympathetic. So she said, okay, well, the, the American Bar Association requires you to finish within five years. Do you think you can do that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so I, it took how long it took. I, gra- I don't know when I started, but I graduated in I, like the fall of 2002 or that's when I was admitted to the Louisiana bar. So I must have graduated in like May. Yeah. You know, then you, yeah, you study the for the bar, then you, yeah. you sit for the bar. So mm-hmm. I'm impressed with this. I didn't realize you were doing that while you were in law enforcement. I would I mean, not recommend that to anyone. Well, no. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, law school is tough enough as it is. And it sounds like you had a family, you had obligations. So, um, it's a big commitment. I would not. Again, it was. It was almost. I was just uh, too dumb to know it couldn't be done. <laughs> so, I, you know, don't give me too much credit. I just, if someone would have explained to me how difficult it was going to be, I wouldn't have you attempted. Would have thought it. about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just go get a doctorate of education or something. Yeah, I, I didn't do it through a sense of courage or, or uh-huh. you know, superior capability. It was more like I got into something and I had to just 
press on, yeah. you know, and rather than withdraw from it. Well, without belaboring the point, I remember my first semester, really the first week, I just thought, I, I don't like this. And I made it. You know, I graduated and I did well. But I didn't really like it. And But I was too stubborn to quit. Once you're in there, you're like, darn, I'm a... I'm gonna give it a shot. You know, same thing. I'd already yeah. paid the money. Exactly. So, I'm yeah. Like, well, I'm not quitting now. So, I want to kind of let you finish up some of your early experiences, especially in Iraq. If you can talk about that, because that's um, that's so impressive to get a Bronze Star Medal. You were a civilian, though, serving it's, our country. It's very unusual for a civilian to be awarded a Bronze Star. Uh, I'm told. And um, what I can do is uh, I can supply the citation that accompanies the Bronze Star that explains what I did. I'm a little hesitant to talk about details. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you what I can, I can tell you. Um, uh, I was, a, a, as you noted, a special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. That is the uh, plainclothes criminal investigative arm of the Air Force. And just like the NCIS is for the Marines and the Navy and the Army Criminal Investigative Division is for the Army. So the, the, every one of these DOD entities seems to have its own specialty, and OSI's forte was, and I believe still is, um, interview and interrogation. OSI polygraphers are very sought after, as are Secret Service polygraphers. Um, that Secret Service polygraphers are sought after by foreign country leadership to settle disputes even. I mean, they are that good uh, as, as just an aside. So um, OSI's spent a lot of extra time at FLETC, which is the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, teaching interview and interrogation. We had, to, we had fake uh, case materials. And we had to uh, interview actors that were trained, and we had to break them using prescribed methods. And you were videotaped, and then they would analyze the videotape. And then you have to do it over and over again. And it was extremely tedious and boring, but they wanted to make us excellent interviewers and interrogators. And so that's our forte. And so the DOD wanted to create this, this team concept that uh, I can't really mention the specifics of it, but they needed some people good at interrogation. And they needed some people who are good at exploiting intelligence. Mm. So that's us. So they put us with the frontline shooters who are great at blowing stuff up and killing people, but not very good at like exploiting a site, for example. Mm -hmm. And that was um, what I was lucky enough to be a part of. And uh, it was a, a great experience. Um, you know, it was one of those things where it's be careful what you ask for, you because I was way, way out of my depth. You know, when you realize that it doesn't matter at the time, you know, I was in superb physical condition. I was trained in Krav Maga, you know, fighting techniques. I was really good with my M4 and with my sidearm, and none of that matters. None of it matters one iota whenever an IED goes off or when a rocket might land close yeah. enough to you, you yeah. know. So it's one of these things where you realize, man, okay, you know, this is a whole different level of, 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 I guess, depth of the pool mm -hmm. that I was swimming in where, you know, it, it, it left me with some, some permanent impressions. You know, when people are sincerely trying to hurt other people, you know, then it, it doesn't matter your education level. It doesn't matter, you know, because we're all about the same level of organic intelligence. So the insurgents who were being manipulated by these senior religious officials that, you know, were, were actually planting roadside bombs and were, uh, you know, basically the, the, the lead in Al-Qaeda, Al the senior leadership of Al-Qaeda, uh, who were following their lead, were just simple people, right? But they were being told that we were infidels, yeah. we were invading. And so it's easy to get people to fight. 
you know, and, and we were after these, this senior leadership target set. So it was like this, this criminal case that we were pursuing leads on and going after specific targets. We weren't after the guys mortaring the bases. We weren't after the guys setting the roadside bombs. That was for conventional forces. The mm-hmm. unit I was with was after specific targets, and we had specific intelligence apparatuses at our disposal yeah. and methods and so forth. And so I was a, a, a battlefield interrogator for them. What an experience. Um, did you learn how to read people? I'm sure you're dealing with masterminds, you know, people that are, their, their whole aim is to fugaboo, you know, whatever the word would be. Um, it just seems like you'd have to really become really skilled quickly on reading people and determining what the truth is while you're trying to protect people that could be hurt, you know. It was a little different than than a criminal case where you're trying to prove things and Arabs react differently to interrogation than Westerners do. So we're more susceptible to logic, whereas they're more susceptible to emotional approaches. So, um, you know, there's certain approaches that uh, I spent, you know, several weeks of my life uh, out in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, that I'll never get back, uh, you know, learning about the, the Army prescribed interrogation methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and we melded those with our own experiences and with our own talents. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I contributed uh, to the mission. Uh, I can say that, uh, that I had reached a, a proficiency level, certainly with, with what I wanted to do and, and to extract intelligence. You know, one of the, the takeaways for your listeners is, um, you know, I, I probably, if it was to save myself or, or, other Americans, I don't think I would have really had a, an issue with torture if I thought it would lead to a, an outcome that I desired, right? Because make no mistake about it, we were in a war zone and people were getting killed every day. Uh, people that I worked with were getting killed. So your perspective changes. You want to survive and you want to protect each other. That's what your goal is. But you know, I didn't find that there were any circumstances that I was in where torture was going to produce a reliable intelligence product that I could give to a ground commander and say, yes, you can bet the lives of your men on this piece of intelligence. I preferred other methods where I could say, yes, mm-hmm. this my name's on this report. This is what I believe we should do. This is the right objective. This is what we're going to find. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, this is the wrong target. This is the follow-on objective and so forth. Because that's what, that's what your role was, was to give advice to, yeah. to people who, you know, had an immense amount of power and resources at their disposal. And uh, ultimately, you know, you know, our goal, we were trying to get the senior leadership uh, yeah. taken out as quickly as we could. And other people um, who were part of the same task force that I was actually uh, were responsible for getting Zarqawi while I was in country. Uh, but I have no, I had no direct part in that whatsoever, yeah. just to be clear with your listeners. I just can't imagine a more you know, rewarding achievement than to be awarded the Bronze Star. So I commend you for your service and thank you for sharing that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll have Val um, get you the citation to it so you can put thank a little you. finer point on it. Yeah, uh, thank you. Know. you. Yeah. Before we jump into what um, your current job is as sheriff and all the things, you know, going on with the jail and your employees and, and programs that you have, we always pause and reflect back on a previous interview and I'd like to reflect on one of my local heroes uh, is Dr. Vincent June. He's the chancellor of SLCC. And in this interview clip, he just shares how important having an accessible education is. For people that would like to hear more of his interview, please visit our website, discoverlafayette.net. And now the clip. What 
I was interested in too is not everything is about a two-year associate's degree. You're mm -hmm. talking about some of these trades. Some people come in just to get industry certification, right? There's mm -hmm. no degree per se, but they are getting accredited mm -hmm. to either get a job or maybe keep their job as, mm -hmm. as uh, regulations change in their industry. Mm -hmm. So people show up sometimes for short courses. Short-term training. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have an area of, of a college called um, Workforce and Corporate College. Mm -hmm. And in that particular area, we have business developers um, that really go out and seek opportunities and have conversations with business and industry um, about what their needs are. Um, oftentimes, we have companies that come directly um, to us and they say, hey, we need to skill up um, our workers in order to ensure that we are, you know, are in real time, you know, meeting certain types of uh, types of needs. Um, we have to upskill um, as well. And then there are unique areas where we, to your point, we create short-term training programs that could range from four to six to eight weeks uh, that allow folks to be able to get uh, um, a certificate um, that is necessary depending on what, what area of industry we're talking about. And so that's the beauty and the flexibility that comes with, with workforce and corporate college. So for all of us. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Lafayette Parish Sheriff Mark Garber. So Mark, I didn't realize how much the sheriff's office does. If you can kind of give like a big overview, I, I just saw to start out that you have about 850 employees with several divisions. And so a lot of us don't even know quite all the responsibilities of your office. Sure, and I've, I've downsized. Um, you know, when I, when I came in, we had about 900 authorized positions and I immediately began eliminating positions that hadn't been filled for quite some time. And then as you may recall, in 2018, I'd asked for a, uh, in a basically a sales tax uh, to be attributed mm -hmm. to the sheriff's office for you know ongoing and future operations and that was rejected by the voters so shortly after that um, I had to lay off a bunch of people uh, because you know w what I what I found as I got into okay what kind of what's our identity as an agency you look first at your core functions okay what are our core functions to serve this community well we incarcerate people that is a core function of what we do we investigate crimes and we answer calls for service so if you look at those three pillars okay those are the three things that we do that directly influence and affect safety and safety is a basic need, as we all know, mm -hmm. right? It's in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. It's right there in the first tier. You cannot engage in commerce or education until you are secure, right? Yet that security is your number one concern until you address that concern. So uh, I, at that point, realized, okay, I have all these ancillary programs that I'm, I'm spending a tremendous amount of money on. I need to direct that money and resources to the front lines and I have to put all my eggs in the corrections and enforcement baskets. And that's what I've done uh, as an agency. I focus on my statutory duties mm -hmm. and we do, we focus on doing those with excellence. Uh, so um, that's, that's kind of how I restructured the agency and we ended up at about 800. Uh, and then I'm about 65 down right now because oh, okay. Everybody shorthanded, okay? It doesn't matter yeah. if you're in the, you have a pipe yard or, you know, whatever business you're in. Okay, I was talking to a caterer earlier today mm -hmm. about, you know, something unrelated and, you know, they have such a staffing problem. Right. So it, everybody has a, a labor problem right now. And, um, you know, it's it's just, uh, it's hard on your existing staff, right? And whenever your your deputies have to work when they're shorthanded, well, then that stress piles up on them and then they 
become overwhelmed, like, right. you know, and, and so then you have more people even, and then employers get desperate, and so the ones who can offer huge amounts of money and bonuses, mm-hmm. which I have no ability to compete with, to me, and so yeah. you you end up losing people like that too. Right. And what I found, you know, some call it the great resignation, some call it the great reimagination, uh, uh, depending on what generation you're you're born in, mm-hmm. but. You know, the younger people, my generation, uh, I'm sorry, uh, my Zers, for example, and millennials are perfectly willing to just jump out the door without a parachute, you know, and completely go off and seek a new adventure. And um, we do exit interviews, of course, with everyone who leaves, and uh, they are not leaving to go to other agencies by and large. You know, every once in a while, I lose some to the state police because, you know, they they just make it so easy and they're they're they actively recruit from all yeah. of us. And you've trained them, so yeah, they're ready no, they, to go. Yeah. It, it's right. It's absurd, but uh, at any rate, they're not. That's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is this reimagination of, you know, I just I'm just going to go try something else. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go la- do landscaping. I'm going to go sell insurance, things like that. And I, anyway, I didn't mean to delve off into that topic. No, but it's but an issue. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, and and really. You know, the only thing you can do as a as a, a leader and administrator is stay the course, you know, stay steady for your people and keep trying, you know, to get people in the door and keep focusing on ways. How do we mm-hmm. retain these people? How do we capture their interest? And I've, I've learned quite a bit uh, about millennials and Generation Zers. Uh, my wife works for Stryker, and uh, that's a very, very, you know, good multinational company. And she works in their data and technology uh, section, mm-hmm. and she manages program managers. And so I've been able to have access to some of the things that Stryker does to uh, give their employees a voice. And I've been able to implement some of those techniques uh-huh. uh, in the sheriff's office. And I'm learning quite a bit, and I'm seeking now to educate my leadership, uh, my captains and my majors and my lieutenants on how do we, you know, make work more rewarding for yeah. these deputies? How do we better show that they have a voice in things? And and I think that's what employers are going to do, mm-hmm. the ones who make it anyway. And we have right. no choice, right? We have to make it. So. Right. And here we are coming out of the COVID shutdown. And I, I knew about some of the, it's not a problem, it was a situation you had to deal with where you had to keep the jail kind of isolated because you couldn't have COVID breaking out like wildfire in the jail. And, and, and I, we, I, I yeah. had uh, yeah. chief judge at the time, Marilyn Castellon, she's like, it It was a tough time. We were already behind. So um, we, as a criminal justice system, at the prosecutor level and at the, you know, just getting them, getting cases adjudicated mm-hmm. pre-COVID, we were way behind. All right. We had wage just cases were stacked up already. Then you you don't go to work for a year, year and a half, you know, which which is what right. some entities did. Right. They just shut down and they couldn't go to courthouse and People intermittently would, yeah, yeah. would, you know, go to work. But, you know, basically mm-hmm. things shut down for about 18 months. But, you know, how absurd would it have been if we just stopped answering calls, right? You call 911 and we say, yeah, we're closed for COVID. <laughs> <laughs> it's laughable, right? Right. But here we were, you know, as a leader, I've got, you know, a bunch of people looking at me saying, okay, do we get to stay home too? Like, no, Mm-mm. no, we can't stay home. So we have to keep working. And so the conveyor belt of bringing people into jail keeps running, but there's no commensurate conveyor belt on the other side taking people out. So, and on top of that, like you, you touched on, I have quarantine concerns. 
So what you do, um, and the CDC actually used us as an example because we were so effective right. at preventing the, the spread of COVID. They called up and talked to my warden and said, what are y'all doing? Because your community rate, you know, Acadiana mm-hmm. was just out of control. We were a bright, bright heat mm-hmm. spot on the map. And yet y'all's facility, which is an aged facility that's poorly designed, you know, is doing so well. And so they, we told them and they eventually came for a site visit because they wanted to really see how we were doing it. And I have to credit my staff with it. Uh, we had some pods and, and, you know, depending on the whatever confusing guidance at the time was available to us, mm-hmm. was how long we would quarantine them for, whether it's 14 days and eventually was seven days. But you have to keep them isolated. And let's say you can fit 28 people in a pod, right? So when you put that, every time you add a person, you have to start over, right? You have to start the clock right. over if you're going right. to do it right. So, you know, it's very tricky to get a pod quarantine to where you can then put them in general population. Mm -hmm. So it was really a tough time for the staff and for us. And unfortunately, because of the backup, we've been full ever since at the jail. How many people are in the jail approximately? About, well, in in LPCC, there's about 600. In the annex, we can take, you know, 150 or so, depending mm-hmm. on who they are. The annex is, is not owned by the parish. That was something that Don Bro built, uh, mainly to house federal prisoners. It, it doesn't work that well because everybody can see each other. It's a round room. And so if you have people who are, are hostile to each other, it's, it's just not conducive, right? right. So um, it, it's, it's a, we can put stabilized people in there. I also house people at my expense uh, out on Willow Street. Um, you know, it, it's a terrible deal for me financially, but I've done everything I can to house every dangerous person that I possibly right. can right. Uh, in, you know, while they're awaiting trial. So we need more trials. We need faster trials uh, and, and more court time in order to alleviate this backup. Mm-hmm. So 600 in the downtown jail, I mean, that's almost double what it was built to hold. It, uh, you're very correct in that. And uh, when I came in, they were holding about 900. <gasps> And, oh my God! You know, so what happened? A prior sheriff actually, you know, came in and it's a three hundred and twenty something bed facility, right? And this this prior sheriff, who I, I'm not going to name, decided to install an extra set of bunk beds in each cell to hold more people, without addressing the shower situation, without addressing the plumbing situation, fire exits. Um, cafeteria, you know, capacity to cook food, because back then it was profitable to do so uh, financially for for the sheriff. You know, not such a good deal nowadays, but costs were vastly different back then. And so this was quietly and, and effectively done, and it just put a tremendous strain on the physical plant of the jail as well as the staff, because it's not designed to hold that many people. It never was. So I've often criticized the architects of the jail, but, you know, in all fairness to them, it was used in a manner that was never contemplated uh, by the design. And, you know, plumbing, it's a very mundane issue. It's not sexy. It's not fun. But when it's a problem, it becomes one of your biggest problems. And there was no correctional specifications to that plumbing. The plumbing was not designed to support this many people showering and, and using the bathroom, for example. So that's been a continuous problem that the LCG has had to deal with an upgrade. Not fun to talk about, not interesting, but it's, but it's, it's reality. reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we've had, when you have raw sewage flooding on your floor of your jail, 
it's everybody's problem. And people are not happy to be there in the first place. They're, you right, know? <laughs> right. And it's demoralizing if you yeah. are a deputy making 40000 a year and you have to deal with that on top of everything else. You know, it's just a, it's a tough mm-hmm. deal. So um, when I came in as sheriff, we had a system where people were sleeping in these plastic boats, they're called, which is a kind of a coffin-like, like a coffin without a top on it, right? And you can put a mattress, this little roll-out mattress in it, and you can sleep someone on it. And they're sleeping in the common areas in the, in the, you know, just there's already a lot more of them than us, but they were sleeping in in areas where it was, they were unsecured and you just had to trust that they wouldn't take over. And in fact, we did have a takeover of the jail prior to me being in there. They, they took a deputy hostage and changed into his uniform and escorted uh, other prisoners out. Uh, even how do you I know, not remember that? that it that's that's it a memorable really, uh, story. It wasn't really reported by the media. Oh uh, gosh, yeah, yeah. So um, at any rate, you know things like that occur yeah. whenever you wow. whenever you compromise your procedures. We had mm-hmm. staff outbreaks that occurred. Uh, staff infection outbreaks mm-hmm. is what I mean. That that would occur because you had too many people in too small of an area. Right. So in order to preserve the morale and welfare of the staff, which is are by far your most important assets, right? That is your people. Um, and also for, you know, the safety uh, mm-hmm. of them, we had to go back to some very strict, safe protocols. And, uh, you know, nothing's perfect, Jan. You know, um, yeah. I'm not the perfect sheriff and never will be, but uh, we have a, a uh, about as good as we can do with what we have right now, uh, the way we run the jail. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, you know, done everything I can to maximize our productivity there. I just need people to get adjudicated more quickly in order to, to relieve the pressure. And as soon as they give me some more space, I can arrest some more people. It sounds like you're getting your business degree on the job, learning, you know, budget and management. So, you know, bringing up the jail and the space, um, in, recently in the news, I saw that the parish council in Lafayette just approved moving forward to look at steps that can be taken to build a new jail. And there's people, I guess, for that and against it. I know nobody wants a jail in their backyard, but from a perspective of revitalizing downtown and giving you more space to do your job, you're looking at um, a place out on West Willow, if that's correct, by where your facility is now out there. Sure, the the parish is. So now's a, a really good time to clarify that. The sheriff, unless I'm allowed to have a say, does not have a say. Okay, no sheriff in any one of our 64 parishes has a say-so in where the jail is or how much the jail holds or anything. The parish owns and, and builds the jail and maintains the jail. That is the parish's responsibility. And you're the I am, manager. I am not a subdivision of the parish. Like mm-hmm. in other states, like in mm-hmm. Texas, the the sheriff's department is a department. In Louisiana, it's a sheriff's office. So I am an independent entity. I'm actually part of the judicial branch as defined under the, the Constitution. And my, I'm a constitutional officer in, okay. in Louisiana Constitution by Article 27. So it's a, a bit different than, than all 49 other states uh, as far as our arrangement goes. So... You know, the the county or the parish, in our case, doesn't owe me anything. They simply have to provide a jail, and then I have to run the jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the statute actually says the sheriff shall be the keeper of the jail uh, in, in a given parish. So I have no say-so in this. This is not my jail. It is the people's jail. Uh, and it is, it is the decision is by the executive branch and the elected representatives mm-hmm. of this parish as to whether they want a new jail and what size they want it. Uh, I, I do hesitantly 
And I cannot emphasize that enough. Hesitantly recommend a larger jail, not because I want to incarcerate more people. That's not a solution. If it was, Louisiana would be the safest piece of real estate right. on earth, you know, right. by or the numbers, the highest, right? Yeah. The um, in so the it, it doesn't seem to have an effect on crime mm-hmm. in and of itself. Uh, but you look at the growth that has occurred in Lafayette Parish, where a fairly small geographic uh, speaking, you know, parish, yet we have a tremendous, you know, density of population. And during the day, it swells up about mm-hmm. to 400,000 or so, if I remember correctly, according to uh, to uh, the LIDA, uh, you know, numbers. So we have a tremendous economy here. We have a tremendous influx of people who come here to shop and work and eat and, and recreate. So we have a lot of demands as a result of that on our infrastructure. And this mm-hmm. is critical infrastructure. Right. So I, I do think we need a, a much bigger facility, but coming with that is going to be a very difficult decision that um, by the voters that they have to decide whether they want to fund that or not because funding the jail can be done with the existing millage, but staffing it can't be. Uh, that has to be fixed also. So you have this jail courthouse millage that mm-hmm. we work with, right? And right now it's an awkward situation. Is it one millage, like yes. one, and you, you have to share yeah, services it, with the courthouse, which is also in bad shape. That's what's awkward about it mm-hmm. because, you know, I've got the clerk of court and That's the judges partners. who I have tremendous respect for. And, you know, we've got this jail and it's like, okay, so there's a finite amount of money and everybody needs, has these real relevant pertinent needs and there's not enough money to go around. So the parish, whoever happens to be the parish president and the elected council has to decide how to divvy all this up. Mm-hmm. It's never enough money. So if you're going to take that millage and you're going to dedicate it, to this, this new jail project, let's say hypothetically, okay, that's mm-hmm. what they're, they're going to do. Well, that works good and fine to fund the construction and maintenance of a new jail for, say, 30 years, right? But how are you going to pay for the increased staff that it's going to take to incarcerate more people? You have to feed them. You have to clothe them. You have to change their laundry. You have to change their bedding. You have to take care of their medical needs. And so it's essentially like a bunch of 200-pound five-year-olds. You have to attend to every single need they have mm-hmm. 24-7, 365. I estimated... Um, Looking at our accounting, it cost me about sixty-five to sixty-nine dollars a day to incarcerate one person. I get reimbursed three dollars and fifty cents from the parish for all these these detainees I have right now who are awaiting trial, which are the vast majority of them. Okay, eighty percent of them are awaiting trial. So I get I spend let's say you know close to seventy dollars a day on on labor cost all all combined right um, and I get three dollars and fifty cents a day and you say well Mark we you know what about these DOC prisoners isn't that kind of a deal for sheriffs not really okay I get twenty five and change for a DOC prisoner that doesn't do me any good the the legislative uh, fiscal office footnote to a statute that was uh, proposed a couple of sessions ago uh, to add attempted possession of a weapon by a felon back to the list of violent crimes had a very interesting note. Um, this, this, this office of bean counters at the state capitol, their job is to tell these elected officials, what is it going to cost downstream if you make this law change? Mm-hmm. So they had, I, found, I happened to catch it. It's in very, very small font. I had my reading glasses on at the time and I saw mm-hmm. it. And the state is talking about it was 72 to $77 a day is what it costs the state to incarcerate somebody. So all this time, the state has been I think unfairly burdening uh, parishes like Lafayette, you know, with the burden of, of holding DOC prisoners. I get rid of them as quick as I can. 
The only ones I keep in jail are the ones I use for maintenance and cooking and cleaning. You cannot force a parish prisoner to perform any task because think about it, they are awaiting trial. They have mm-hmm. not been adjudicated guilty. Now, if they're serving parish jail time, that's a different thing. But someone who has not been tried mm-hmm. and convicted or ha- entered into a plea deal is has a presumption of innocence. They cannot be made to pick up litter. They cannot be made to clean up you know, and, and do things. We can get them to volunteer, but most of them are not stable enough for that. Uh, they would assault and batter staff and other inmates and so forth. Wow. So we have to use stabilized which are, you know, basically they've been in the system for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're often, you know, they've been convicted. So these are DOC prisoners. That's who does the laundry. That's who disseminates meals mm-hmm. in large part. That's who does your cleaning and, you know, cooking and things like that. Uh, that's what we use them for. When you say DOC, Department of Corrections, yes, you're talking ma'am. about these I are people. Apologize. That's okay. Yeah. So these are people that they could be from here, but they were convicted or pled guilty to a crime. Right. So they're in the jail system and then right. they can be utilized. Like, well, you know, we see inmate labor and they typically do a very good job, you know, Yeah. but I yeah. wasn't sure about that. So how do you fund your office? You've got this millage that we pay property taxes. Do you get any sales taxes or are you just dependent on the property? I have a tax? very small sales tax. So every time Lafayette, Broussard, Youngsville, Karen Crow annexes, area, I lose on sales tax. Because they it's no literally, longer uh, unincorporated parish. They literally take money out of my pocket and put it in their pocket every time they do that. And it's just one of those things, I can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so La- Lafayette Parish is largely annexed. And so I have a half cent tax that was enacted under Sheriff Newstrom. And, um, you know, if somebody buys a car and they live in the unincorporated part of the parish, I get, yeah. you know, sales tax from that. So it really doesn't, that, that's uh, that's not a, a main source of income. I might stable. make like yeah. four million out of seventy million a year uh, in a budget comes from sales tax, okay. give or take. You know that's four to four to four and a half million mm-hmm. uh, of my my budget. And how um, do you fund the rest? Ad valorem taxes. So property taxes property are tax. the main mechanism that funds most sheriff's offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and a property tax is generally a stable tax that's going to appreciate in value over time. However, I've been in a bit of a trick bag the last two years. You look at um, how our, our our oil economy was decimated, right? Absolutely decimated by policies of, of certain, you know, mm-hmm. that came out of D.C. And so it destroyed the business in the Gulf, absolutely destroyed it. Okay, so all this infrastructure moves out of the Gulf. And so you've had a, a slow, I guess, decline in our um, buildings, you know, that are that are occupied. Now you have mm-hmm. a lot of buildings that are unoccupied. Yeah, uh, their values declining. Yeah. So the yeah. values decline, and you know, the tax assessor assesses taxes, and, and we and I collect them and disseminate them to myself mm-hmm. and other branches of government. Well, those commercial buildings don't have a homestead exemption. They are the biggest funders of government. And when you have, uh, you know, your big, big bedrock industry that consolidates itself into Houston and other areas, you know, where they can't maintain a facility in Lafayette anymore because it's not commercially viable, Mm -hmm. then we lose, right? And so we as a community, even though our sales tax has been great, especially during COVID, our property taxes have remained very flat. Mm -hmm. And if I were you, I would say, well, Mark, we've had this big housing boom, you know, how can you not be doing well with all these houses? But don't forget, we have a homestead exemption, which I entirely support, by the way. But, you know, 
So I don't get a lot from the average house that goes to to yeah. my operating account. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at uh, my obligations to retirees, um, basically over 75% of my money every year is spent on January 1st. It is gone. It's done because I have to provide health insurance basically for life to employees who are retirees of the sheriff's office. So uh, that's a statute. I have no control over it, nor what I wouldn't want to take that away either. But that is an obligation that, you know, some people require $30,000 a month in medication. Okay. I mean, we're, we're very good at keeping people right. alive, but it's a tremendous, you know, cost mm-hmm. uh, to an employer. And so I look at this and you might say, well, Mark, it looks like here you have, you know, in the high 60s or, or right at $70 million between all your income from contractual relationships and ad valorem taxes and sales tax. True. But 75% of it is gone on January 1. So you only have a couple of million dollars a, a month as a sheriff to buy bullets and cars and repl- replace tires and toner for the copiers and printers mm-hmm. and computers for about 800 employees. So it's really a, a very tight right. operation as far as the finances go. What a shock when you walked into the office. I mean, you know, people talk about bureaucrats, but you really need to have seasoned employees that understand budget and how to keep things going. If you're I've not experienced, yeah, I yeah. mean, you're lucky to have a great team because for somebody to walk in and try to figure all this out, as a newly elected official, it's got to be, not that it's overwhelming, but it's a lot to comprehend. Well, sure, yeah. you think about a police chief, okay? Um, they supervise cops doing cop stuff. That's it. You know, they, they have to prepare a budget, but they submit it to a city council or manager. And, you know, it, it's relatively mm-hmm. simple mm-hmm. compared to, okay, you get a finite amount of money that can change based on the, the assessment of an independent elected official every year which then you have to go out and collect by force if necessary, and yeah. then that's it. So if you run out of payroll, if, if say, if, if costs suddenly increase for everything, which we- Which they are. We yeah. may have heard of, right. Yeah. And it's it, tough, right? I have no way to increase my revenue. Mm-hmm. So I just have to suck it up. And uh, yeah, that's the, that's the gig. That's, yeah. uh, that's what it's like being a Louisiana sheriff. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not gonna ask you what you think about a proposed tax, you know, to build this new jail, because honestly, you know, we're, we seem to be an anti-tax community, but we, we want our services sure. provided. So it's a tricky balance. Well, I'm glad you went through this because I don't it, think people understand how this works. It, 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 it's not simple to understand. Now, you know, we can use the existing tax to fund the construction of this jail. It can be fully funded. And this private partnership with a, a design, build, maintain firm um, will transfer the risk onto them as far as the risk of construction. It's a great deal for a government to do this kind of partnership. But what I'm at, the question I'm posing just to re-clarify it is, how do we pay for the labor yeah. and the operating cost, the other operating cost? You know, mm-hmm. sure, they'll fix the roof, they'll maintain the alarm system and the uh, wow. video camera system and all that, which is a great deal for us. But, you know, where do we get the rest of that money? Um, and I know that, you know, my partner, uh, Josh Guillory, has uh, absolutely, you know, committed to not raising or, or, or seeking a tax. And I support that. Okay, I totally support it. Uh, just like I respected the will of the voters when I asked for, for that in 2018. But then the question remains, okay, 
what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to do this? And, uh, you know, that's something I'll, I'll freely engage in, in uh, communication with members of the public about, but I will not, um, you know, go forward and, and ask individually uh, for the voters to approve that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not until I have some strong, strong indicators that people are ready and committed to that. Right. We do so many other things besides incarcerate and take care of of these prisoners. And I wanted you to talk about, um, you know, with all the shootings around the country, I know that you do um, and your team perform school safety training in the public school system. And I'm assuming if private schools call you, that same thing would be done. But can you talk about that? I mean, that's such an important issue for our families. Well, we manage the entire school resource officer program for mm-hmm. this parish. Uh, in 2018, Eric Nizek, who was uh, then the uh, president of the school board, and uh, Don Aguilar, who was the uh, superintendent at the time, now he's a school board member, yeah. uh, came to me and said, look, you know, we want you to, to take over the SRO program. We have a hodgepodge here and there of, mm-hmm. you know, SROs at some high schools, and we want to take it over. I'm like, great. You know, yeah, we, we should have one at every single school. We, we, we're, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need intelligence apparatuses. We, we really, you know, to prepare for tomorrow, there was a couple of guys just like me and Eric who are saying, we got to prepare for this. And so they, they initially, the, the concept was we're going to put them at just high schools. And I said, nope, not acceptable. It's got to be at every school. You know, look at Sandy Hook. That Sandy exactly. Hook had already happened, right? Yeah. It, the threat is, is ever-present at every school. So uh, we, we worked it out. Uh, we have a, a SRO at every school. School have, resource officer. I, right. I have deputies to fill in when there's vacancies or when they can't come to work because life happens. You know, and, and they have family obligations and things come up just like we do. Uh, and we have an intelligence, a dedicated intelligence apparatus that um, uses tactics, techniques, and procedures that I won't go into to detect and monitor threats that are coming in. And look, in no way, shape, or form am I representing to you and your listeners that anything is 100%, all right? There, there's no guarantee I'm going to make it home today if you look at it intellectually, honestly, right? But we are doing a very, very good workmanlike job of mitigating risk to our students. Um, there's To me, there's no higher purpose, Jan, than we could serve than to protect the future generations. Our youngest. And I know it sounds a little bit corny to say it like that, but I really do feel that way and believe that. That is our highest purpose. If we're running toward the sound of gunfire to save lives of kids, that is a worthy purpose to, to risk your life for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely worthy to do that. Uh, and, you know, I can't think of a better place to have to reinforce than our schools. I just wish President Biden felt the same way. Instead of trying to reinforce the IRS, he would help us oh, fund gosh, this. gosh, yeah. Send some more money down to the uh, right. states. Huh? 87,000 SROs would be great, mm-hmm. and they don't cost as much as IRS agents. Right. Just saying. Right. So you also help the administration, though, understand more about how to keep the schools safe. Absolutely. You've got yeah, the we, person on site, but you also give them training. 100%. Yeah, we've uh, we've really reached a fine point um, with our administrators. You know, in 2018, 2019, it was really new. Um, a lot of principals and vice principals or assistant principals didn't understand the role of an SRO. Mm-hmm. You know, and now with unfortunate recent events, as well as our refining their, their in-service training, 
teaching them, okay, how do you use this tool to protect yourself? And, and that's my words to them uh, when I spoke to the, the in-service groups were exactly that. You know, this is a tool at your disposal, and we're going to give you training on how to best use that tool, as well as how to protect yourself, your children, your mm-hmm. staff, in the event that the, the, the unthinkable does happen. Uh, I do consider it um, a failure, you know, if it happens. But I can't prevent it from happening, right? I mean, I can't prevent a, a random attacker from secretly planning an attack and executing it. But we can mitigate that. We can mm-hmm. teach people the importance of locking doors, not just tell them, but we can show them how important it is with, with specialized training. And that's mm-hmm. what we've done uh, by, by training these school administrators is, is, I think, driven the point home more than ever. Uh, so I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done. I would say that we're, based on my, my interaction with my peers across the country, uh, no offense to guys and girls, but we're way better off. You know, I don't mean to offend anybody else, but we're way better off mm-hmm. here. Um, largely because of the vision, uh, I would have to credit, um, you know, Eric Nizek, you know, because uh, I couldn't have done this, right? If I just come out of the blue, you know, and say, hey, I want y'all to pay for this. It's, it's going nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and then Superintendent Aguilar, you know, I, I really just have to give them a lot of credit yeah. for this because they had the vision. Uh, I definitely had the vision and the, the, the desire to do it, but without some partners who were on the inside track like that, it would have never happened. I'm glad they raised awareness. It just seems a short time ago, as parents, we didn't think anything about just walking on campuses and just walking in. You know, and uh, it seems like the issue we'd worry about back even 10 years ago, 15 years ago here, would be somebody coming in that was mad maybe at a, a teacher. Maybe there was a domestic problem. We weren't thinking about these bad actors that would Not just show all. up and shoot innocent children and teachers. But it, yeah. it, things have just changed for me, it seems, overnight. And um, I just, I, as, as you're saying, I just can't think of a better place to direct your resources into our children and and their teachers. So I had a question, if you can explain for us too, we have a lot of police departments in Lafayette Parish, and I know you're the chief law enforcement agent for the parish. How do you work with, and how does it all coordinate between Lafayette Police, Scott, Dusan, you know, Youngsville Mm -hmm. and all? How do you guys all work together, uh, coordinate resources? It's an excellent uh, question. So we provide resources that are common to all of these jurisdictions that they don't have to maintain. Um, you know, these police departments are optional for these cities. For example, you know, Lafayette City could roll the Lafayette City Police up into the sheriff's office and we could have a a more like a metropolitan police force that would encompass the parish and the city of Lafayette. Um, when I was just at the FBI National Academy, uh, the, the county that I was situated in had that kind of arrangement. Did it so work the, well? So the towns, yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's, it, you don't hear anything about it. Florida, it's a very common occurrence too, uh-huh. where the uh, the cities save money, you know, because you don't have to have all this duplication of services. You just have a, a, a county police. That's what they call them uh, in Stafford County, uh, Virginia, for mm-hmm. example, um, and Prince William County and those things where, you know, towns, you can have a police department, but 
it's it's optional to have that. So, you know, for the ones that want to have a police department, that's, you know, it, it's good to, I guess, have that close uh, to you and, and sort of be able to um, have more control over their particular flavors of law enforcement. And so we support those police departments. We support them with manpower when uh, something happens, like in homicide in Broussard, right? You mm-hmm. have you have two guys or three, two or three people on a supervisor working. So obviously we're going to go answer their calls for service. We're going to provide, uh, you know, crime scene support to them, for example, and uh, investigative support if mm-hmm. they need it. Uh, and that that was very, very common in the past. And these these departments continue to grow and innovate. And uh, they've been investigating their own homicides a lot of times recently. And we're, we're there if they need us. Um, I have a full-time SWAT team that, um, in the age of active shooters, uh, decided to um, implement this. So I've got guys who... Uh, ride around all day long and, and hunt fugitives. And of course we could arrest more, as I mentioned, than we, you know, we, we could be arresting them at a higher rate, but, um, they are ready to respond to an active shooter. Uh, they are highly, highly trained. They're in very good shape. They're superbly equipped and they've, they've responded, uh, you know, several times since that inception to, in progress incidents. And most of these things happen during the day. So that's when they're working primarily. And you uh, work with the SWAT team also, right? Don't you participate? Uh, in yeah, I, I, I've been known to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So if somebody, let's say I live in the city of Lafayette. So if somebody is arrested, like if somebody's committing a crime, would the first line of defense be the police department? Absolutely. Or if, so yeah. it doesn't matter if the sheriff's just driving by, the sheriff deputy, it would be first their jurisdiction? Well, it's actually, I have jurisdiction in every square inch of this parish. Okay. So if I want to come in and investigate something in the city or wherever, mm-hmm. I, I can absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I'm the chief law enforcement officer by the Constitution. Uh, we share jurisdiction with these cities. Um, and I'm not funded to operate fully for calls for service in the city of Lafayette. Uh, most of my time uh, is spent in the city of Lafayette as far as our resources, uh, either serving civil paperwork or arresting fugitives. Mm-hmm. Primarily, we're in the city of Lafayette. Uh, my narcotics unit operates extensively in the city of Lafayette investigating narcotics. We, of course, deconflict with Lafayette Police Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, so y'all's the primary uh, point of contact when you call 911 as a citizen of Lafayette City is the Lafayette City Police Department. Uh, they're excellent police department, excellently equipped, trained, uh, you know, and, and excellent capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so um, there are often, you know, or at least a significant amount of times where special requests are made uh, for the sheriff's office for one reason or another uh, inside various cities. Uh, but that's what why you see your black and white city police cars uh, and uh, they respond to crime primarily. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, your your job is more than 24-7. I'm thinking about all the things we haven't talked about. I, I meant to ask you about, um, you train new law enforcement personnel, and that's not just for your department. Alita, Acadiana Law Enforcement Training Academy, I read right. about that with interest. Yeah, so when, when I came in, um, and I was elected in 2015, and as you noted, I took office in 2016, uh, they uh, were owned and, and by UL, okay? UL actually had the uh, police officer standards and training uh, charter from the state for that academy. And at the time, UL proposed, hey, you know, you've been running it anyway. The prior sheriff had, uh, and he said, why don't y'all just take it over fully? Mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, you know, absolutely, because it was one of my my 
areas of great, great interest at the time was to try to improve the standards of training. You know, I've been fortunate in my career to have been to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. I've been to the Secret Service School, you know, and, and had superb, just copious amounts of excellent training and, and a lot of money's been spent making me who I am today. And so, you know, not everybody has that opportunity. So what can I do as sheriff to bring that level of training here to Acadiana and improve the product of the, the quality of the peace officer we put out? And uh, we have a, an excellent training staff. We use the training center. Uh, ex I mean, I, I told them I wanted it, uh, you know, use like a, a, a just, you know, use it like you stole it. You know, just use, run people through there. Mm -hmm. We host other agencies to come do training there. We, uh, we have a superb curriculum for basic academy recruits. And so agencies from all over Acadiana, uh, even some outside of the Acadiana region, send recruits to our uh, academy. Um, we, we're not trying to wash people out, but we're not too easy on them either. Right. And uh, Well, they we, need to know early on if it's a fit. And we, so. we want to give them a look, a, a real good look into, um, you know, the, the kind of pressure they might be under. And we want to make them able to survive deadly mm -hmm. force encounters as best as we can and get them ready. Because, like, say you're a Lafayette police officer, okay? When you get out of my training academy, you're going into what's called IPT, initial phase training, where it's, I think, about seven weeks of really intense training before, mm -hmm. at their you know, their particular nuances of how they want things done before you're even on the street. So, you know, they're not done training when they're done at Alita, but a lot of them are, okay? So a lot of these other agencies, the day they graduate Alita, they're, on they're the in a car by themselves. Oh, gosh. So we, we prepare them as, as yeah. best we can. And um, mm -hmm. I have, uh, I'd, I'd put this up, I've been all over the world uh, and, and seen, you know, different, uh, you know, levels of, of training and proficiency, and we are top-notch here at the uh, Acadiana uh, Training Academy, uh, absolutely. Right, right. Um, are there some things you wanted to talk about that you thought I'd bring up? Any other um, Nothing topics? in particular. You know, I think that, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll leave, uh, if, if it's okay with Valerie, I'll leave this with you, and you can look at our, uh, you know, our search and rescue capabilities, um, you know, more things. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd like to touch briefly on the uh, Violent Offender Task Force um, because it, it's, it's kind of of interest, I think, to a lot of people here in the city of Lafayette. You know, we've all seen nationwide that crime went up, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember a certain police chief who got fired, um, you know, was kind of taking credit for crime being low, but it was low everywhere. Like New Orleans had historic lows in homicides. Chicago was low. You know, everything was low. Mm -hmm. And if you've been at this business a while or if you have a criminal justice degree, then you realize that crime goes up and down in a sine wave-like rhythm. And when it's low, it's going to go up. And when it's up, it's going to go down. So sure enough, it went up. You know, and this is normal, okay? Crime was, you know, it, it's just going to do that, right? It's going to ebb and flow. Um, there are other atmospherics at play, such as COVID, which make it a more complicated analysis. But uh, back in um, 20, late 2021, uh, I was uh, driving up uh, to uh, Natchitoches, actually, with my wife. And I'm on 49, and I'm in, I'm in deep, deep thought thinking about Lafayette, thinking about the shootings and the increased violence that we're seeing uh, as we approached, uh, it wasn't between Christmas and New Year's yet, but it was approaching Christmas. And I was just really getting irritated at the brazenness of the criminal activity that was occurring. And I was thinking, what can I do? You know, because when you do a, a crackdown, okay, most of the time 
what law enforcement proposes is like a sledgehammer type approach, right? Well, we're just going to crack down, right? On on and it's mostly on the minority communities is where you crack down. We don't go in a river ranch and look for crime, right? We go police really really hard in minority areas. Well, you're going to find crime pretty much where you go look for it. That's been proven and established. You think other people are criminals too? I, I mean, I'm kidding. It's like you know, crime. Right. crime. Crime well, happens everywhere. Well, you, you don't stop a guy in New York City who's on Wall Street for jaywalking, right? Right. Or you don't stop a bike courier for going the wrong way. But if they go into these other, mm -hmm. in the Bronx, they'll stop people for doing the same thing. So it's a disparate way to treat the population. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I try to be a, a well-read, educated sheriff for, for all of you. And, and I said, okay, I know this doesn't work, right? We don't mm -hmm. just want to say we're going to do a crackdown and we're going to police extra hard and that's going to solve our problems. We know if you look, it doesn't solve anything. So all it does is really distance you from the community that you serve. So instead, let's look at right. the who are the people who are really at the core of this criminality, right? It's a relative few people who are causing the majority, the vast majority, like 98% of the violence. You know, if you exclude your random serial killer homicide and your domestic violence, you're left with this drug trade, quasi-gang activity-related violence where people are beefing with each other mm -hmm. and just going around and sh randomly shooting each other, and sometimes innocent bystanders. So I had my intelligence unit, which is an excellent, excellent intelligence unit, because that's my background, as you know, um, put together, okay, who are these people? And I'm not going to tell you how we did it, but we got amazing profiles on a relatively small group of people. And I called up Josh Guillory and I said, look, um, I, you know, the chief thing was in flux and all that. So I just, I said, look, I need to get the Lafayette police on board. I want to do something. I want to form a task force. And it doesn't take long to form a task force, okay? You're asking cops to do cop stuff. It's pretty easy, mm -hmm. actually, right? So I want to go after a targeted group of people and a targeted group of behaviors that I had identified that were precursors to this extreme violent activity. Mm -hmm. And so he said, love it, consider it none. Uh, he told the interim chief, he said, look, y'all work with the sheriff. We got together, we formed a joint uh, task mm -hmm. force that is operated from, I think January 5th or 6th, something like that, continuously through the end of September. Uh, and it's it's been and had amazing amazing results. Uh, we'll share the stats with you. Um, it, it, we, we've, it was all, total self-initiated activity by these officers and deputies. We have taken a tremendous amount of guns and drugs off the street mm -hmm. quietly, effectively. We haven't used much force, you know, because you have these highly switched on peace officers who mm -hmm. are adequately supported, who are able to overwhelm people, uh, the bad people, before they can really, you know, Mm -hmm. have the latitude to, to use deadly force. I mean, there right. have been shootings, but it, it's been, you know, beyond question on the justification of it. And you really need the community to help you because they know where to find some of these people too. But if you if they and feel like, I, like you said, if the hammer's going to come down, they're not going to cooperate. But if you work with people, they'll help you because it, it benefits them and their neighborhood. These officers um, and deputies reported people coming out of their houses and saying, you know, hey, look, look in both ways. <laughs> I really don't want to be seen talking to you, but thank you. Thank yeah. you for being here. Thank you for stopping these people and, and doing what y'all are doing. You know, amazing uh, public support without us just jacking up every single person that walks down the street, mm -hmm. right? Because that's 
historically is just a you know very yeah. blunt uh, weapon approach instead of a, a scalpel. Yeah. So you know it's, it's a respectful way to police. We're, we're trying. Okay. Yeah. We as a profession have got to change. That's abundantly clear to anyone who is in a leadership position, unless they're just on their way out the door. You, we've got to change. We've got to be more emotionally intelligent about how we do our job, and we we are changing as a profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that this was this was Lafayette law enforcement, um, you know, jointly responding. And really, we, Jan, I'll tell you, we mitigated so much damage. You can't measure what you prevent. But when we took certain bad actors off the street, right away you saw drops in violence. Now, things have happened. Things have continued to happen. You know, whenever these guys, mainly when they're off, by the way, when the VOTF uh, deputies and officers were off is mainly when the shootings were occurring uh, because they're that in tune to what we're doing. Uh-huh. But it's uh, it's been amazingly it's effective. Advanced. I'm really proud of these these men uh, from both agencies for the work that they did, and they absolutely deserve the credit and support of the public. With the rise in fentanyl deaths, I mean, this is so important. I don't know if that's what you're cracking down on, you know, but um, it's just frightening to hear about people that are mainstream that— they might be doing something recreationally and fentanyl's in it. it it's profoundly sad. sad. Uh, you know, when I've, I've been contacted by parents of kids who, you know, were, were doing illegal drugs, but they, they weren't looking for what they got. And it ended in, uh, you know, pretty tragic consequences. And they didn't deserve that, you know, by any stretch. They just didn't. It's not fair. It's not right. Um, my main goal of this violent offender task force was street level violence, bullets, stray bullets hitting people, mm-hmm. which is we had two incidents last year of stray bullets just hitting people minding their own business. Uh, you know, so we had to stop that. We had to curtail that because it was getting too brazen. You had shootings right by City Hall and by the police department. You know, you think about that. That's just brazen, yeah. no fear activity. And we did, okay, mm-hmm. together with the Lafayette Police Department, we did push back successfully on that. The narcotics units of my office and the Lafayette Police Department have never stopped working during that time to fight fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now with some, you know, some strength in laws, I think we're going to see Absolutely. some actual penalties coming out for using fentanyl. And maybe it won't be so attractive to cut your heroin with it. Oh, and uh, not to mention the cocaine, which is is absurd because those two things have opposite effects. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got an analgesic type effect and then you've got a stimulant type effect. I don't know why you would cut fentanyl with cocaine, but, you know, I'm, I'm not in the drug yeah. business either. So, yeah. yeah. Well, as we close, I do want to mention what you were talking about, the search and rescue. I know that you've got a team of not only trained law professionals, but also civilians right. that qualify to be able to help in situations like after a flood or crisis, weather-related, and I guess other things. So... I was sure. glad to see that. I know they've been very effective. They have, and and uh, you know, I've, I've thankfully I spun them up a couple of times last last hurricane season, and then it was very anticlimactic because you know the hurricane would move at the last second, you know, and God bless Lake Charles and what they went through. That it really could have been us, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. sure. And uh, we we've had our licks, you know, and and all that, but we got uh, very very fortunate uh, last year. But they are trained in in swift water rescue techniques. They are equipped uh, with with all of the uh, the equipment you'd expect to see with individual flotation devices and uh, you know better just small watercraft and things like that. And it's um, it's not a it's not an easy job 
when you're in a disaster situation. You know, there's snakes floating around trying to figure out where they're going to go. There's rats, you know, clinging to stuff. And, you know, you, you can't see what you're doing. The water's not clear. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're walking on debris. You're subject to getting cut in, in water that's, you know, mixed with sewage because things have overflowed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a, a really takes a special person to want to do it and then to maintain the, the strict uh, requirements that we do. Uh, the swimming test is very difficult, uh, for example, you know, we, but we have to have them to have some survivability, right? right, right. Uh, I had a, a young uh, a deputy who's no longer with us, um, but she had jumped out of a, uh, a dump truck because that's what used to be our high water vehicles or dump trucks, and we still use them to an extent, and she disappeared underwater because oh, no. she's very short stature and so she had to jump up on her tiptoes weighed down I'm by alive. her yeah. gun belt and like breathe and mm-hmm. then move a little bit and breathe and move a little bit until she could get to higher ground Gosh. and uh she kept doing her job mm-hmm. you know even through all that and she went you know had to get back to the truck too so you know it's it's that kind of spirit is is the kind of people that you've got uh who are going to come help you if you're right. in trouble in this jurisdiction well i know that being a law enforcement professional takes a unique individual. So I want to thank you for all you do for our community and what your team does. We're lucky to have you. And uh, I guess I mentioned I'm, I'm chair of Crime Stoppers. I've had the pleasure of working with Jules Broussard from your department. But I've learned firsthand that this is law enforcement's a job for professionals. And we all should tip our hat to you and others for putting yourselves um, in danger every day for us. So thank you. Well, uh, you're welcome. No need to thank me. Uh, it's the job suits me perfectly. Uh, at, you know, it's uh, something I'm just uh, been attracted to, like I told you since the beginning, and I'm I'm really happy to be here and to serve Lafayette. Thank you. Well, Lafayette Parish Sheriff Mark Garber has been our guest, and it's it's been an honor to have you on. I'd like to thank our listeners for your loyal support. I'd also like to thank Raider, and in particular Jason Sakura who mixes our tape. Thank you for making us sound professional. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, this is Jan Swift. Mm-hmm.